Gary could not wait to see the pictures from his marvelous vacation to the Sioux Locks. Being from Michigan, he had been to the Sioux several times, but this was the first time he had witnessed so many ships moving through from Lake Superior to Lake Huron. Gary grabbed the thick packet of photos and thumbed through them as he waited in line to make his purchase. There they were, his memories printed on paper to last a lifetime. But then, Gary stopped at one picture in particular. His heart sank. Darn it, he mumbled, instead of a picture-perfect picture of the largest ship on the Great Lakes waters, the picture was overexposed. Gary could almost see right through the ship as if, well, as if the ship were a ghost. He sighed as he tried to read the words written on the side of the boat. Finally, he was able to read the name. Edmund Fitzgerald, Milwaukee. Welcome to Where They Stood, a podcast dedicated to Michigan history and morbidly amazing stories buried deep and not so deep in our family trees. I'm your long story long podcast host, Holly Core, and today's episode was supposed to come out several weeks ago for the anniversary of the sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald. But life. Now, when I say the words, the Edmund Fitzgerald, I know those first few notes from a particular folk song by the late, as of this year, Gordon Lightfoot flew out of your memory banks. This isn't just a tragedy that happened 48 years ago on November 10th. It is a tragedy that we remember in a song, sung by a singer who passed away earlier this year. This is the story of the Edmund Fitzgerald, also known as the pride of the American side. But before you sigh and say, oh, come on, I've not only heard the story a million times, I can just listen to the song. Well, I'm going to attempt to tell you the story a wee bit differently. I'm trying to find the stories you may have never heard about. You know, the backstories. I don't want to just throw words at you, but give you word pictures. Putting you there on board the mighty fits. And then getting you back off again before it, you know, capsizes. So, climb aboard and be prepared for a story as old as, well, me. Are you ready, dear listeners? Let's go. The Edmund Fitzgerald was born, or built, in 1957. She... I guess you call ships she, and it has something to do with Latin. Anyhow, she was named after a man. This is getting a bit strange here. The man's name was Edmund Fitzgerald. But who was he? Oh, just the president and CEO for a Milwaukee, Wisconsin-based company called Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance. This is actually who funded the building of the Mighty Fitz. Yeah. A life insurance company. Pretty boring answer, right? (laughs) But it made sense that this company had the ship built because Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company had a lot invested in the iron and minerals industries back then. And that was what the Edmund was going to transport around the Great Lakes. By building the Fitz, Northwestern Mutual owned a ship that could haul that kind of stuff. And while all of that can be 
Yawn. Kind of boring. The man, Edmund B. Fitzgerald, was not. Boring. Ed, let's call him Ed for differentiation, was really into boats and nautical things. According to an article written by Chris Foran of the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, Ed Fitzgerald's father owned a ship repair company and his grandfather was a ship captain and was one of the founders of the Wisconsin Marine Historical Society. Ed Fitzgerald also was a civic leader actively involved in the rush of post-war improvements in Milwaukee. End quote. Ed had five brothers that were all mariners. It seemed to run in the family. Little side note, Ed Fitz's son, who had the exact same name as him, was part of a group that brought Major League Baseball back to Milwaukee with the Milwaukee Brewers. Now, let's talk about her, the SS Edmund Fitzgerald. Trivia question. What does SS stand for when placed in front of a boat's name? I asked my husband, Joe. He guessed sinkable ship. Yo, dang man. But no, no, it does not. Do you know what it stands for? SS stands for Steam Ship. The Mighty Fitz was all that and a bag of sun chips, which happens to be what I get with my meal at Subway. Northwestern Mutual spared no expense when it came to their precious shipping beauty. $8.4 million were spent to build her. That's about $81 million in today's books. She was also the largest ship of her time when she was commissioned, measuring at one foot less than the maximum allowable limit. And why was there even a limit? Oh, because of the locks. Pause. What are those? Google answer. Built in 1855, the locks are canals that allow large shipping vessels to pass through Lake Huron to Lake Superior, and also from Minnesota to the Atlantic Ocean, and vice versa. End quote. Some extra info about the locks. It takes nine hours for a ship to go through. It requires 22 million gallons of water for a ship to travel through. And it is free for ships to travel through the locks, although there used to be a fee. One last personal thing about the Sulaks, I have never been there. We will talk location of the Sulaks a little bit later. Let's discuss the beauty of the boat. The mighty fits appeared rather plain on the outside, a white top half with a red bottom half, but listen to how bougie the ship was on the inside. From advanced charting and navigation equipment to the premium radio and communication sets, According to Maritime Horrors, the ship had two guest staterooms, a guest lounge, laundry room, rec room, and a larger-than-typical crew quarters. Personal showers, deep pile carpeting, which actually made me pause and think, ew, on a ship? Does it get wet? Because wet carpets, mm, no. Anyhow, tiled bathrooms, desks, bookcases, recliners, plush seating, oh, and air conditioning. There was a full kitchen and two dining rooms to feed the entire crew and anyone else on board. No expense seemed to have been spared. There was even a grand staircase that stretched from the top deck all the way down to steer it. Oh, no, 
that was a different ship. Never mind. In 1957, the Edmund Fitzgerald was built in River Rouge, Michigan, which is just south of Detroit and just south of the Ambassador Bridge, which connects the United States, Detroit, Michigan, and Canada, Windsor, Ontario. On June 7, 1958, about 10,000 people were present to see the mighty Fitz launched into the water. This day was fraught with uh-ohs and oh-shits. First, it took Elizabeth Fitzgerald, wife of Ed, three attempts to break the bottle of champagne over the bow. Lore and legend has it that if the bottle doesn't break, it's considered bad juju for the boat. Thoughtco.com states, quote, Maritime superstition held that a ship that wasn't properly christened would be considered unlucky, and a champagne bottle that didn't break was a particularly bad omen. End quote. The next mishap turned tragedy occurred when the ship slipped into the water. It did so at such a crazy angle that it sent a rogue wave careening in the other direction. A rogue wave. This wave collapsed a nearby grandstand, causing a bit of chaos and a death. 58-year-old Jennings Frazier of Toledo, Ohio, suffered a heart attack and died almost instantly. Are you superstitious? Because if you are, these could all be signs pointing toward doom. It was now time for the Edmund Fitzgerald to go to work. She left River Rouge on September 22, 1958. While working, the mighty Fitz set many records and hauled cargo thought too big to haul. People were amazed by this ship and would often try to catch a glimpse of her when she was close to shore. And according to Maritime Horrors, people would line the Sulaks to watch her go through, which the character in our story opener, Gary, had been doing while on vacation. All right, I'm having a difficult time referring to the ship as a female with a name like Edmund, but it is 2023. Just get on board, Holly. Let's talk about who was in charge on board the Edmund Fitzgerald. One of the first captains was Paul Pulser, known as the singing skipper or DJ captain. He was friendly and liked to boost morale by piping music throughout the ship. Fun guy, that Captain Pulser. Oh, and he would often go to the deck of the ship and spit out facts about the mighty Fitz through a megaphone, entertaining crowds as the ship went chugging on by. A couple of bad things happened while he was captain, though. The Fitz hit the ground near the Sulaks in 1969, causing damage. Then, in April 1970, the Fitz collided with the SSH-something that I'm not going to try to pronounce. This caused more damage to the Fitz. Later that same year, in September... The Fitz was damaged again when it hit a lock wall, which I was kind of assuming was a Sioux lock wall. This was the third time the ship had been damaged in 12 months. Now, I'm not saying this was why Captain Pulser decided to retire. I'm also not not saying this was why. I honestly don't know. But while being fixed in 1971, the Fitz was converted from running on coal to running on oil. Enter Ernest McSorley. He was the next and last captain of the SS Edmund Fitzgerald. At 63 years old, McSorley was well-loved 
and had been at sea since the age of 18. I mean, not continuously. With over 40 years of sailing on the Great Lakes, McSorley was a bit different from the previous captain. He did not blast music from the fits, but tended to keep things more professional and had that bit of distance between himself and the crew. Still, McSorley was well-liked and respected and damn good at his job, even though the boat hit the walls of the Sulaks a few more times, causing damage. I'm wondering if that just can't be avoided. All right, we really need to discuss a major character of this story. We've discussed the ship and its captains, but now let's talk about the workplace, which was the water. Big water. Superior water. If you live outside of the Great Lakes region, then you might be envisioning some local lake around you where you can like, get into a little paddle boat or canoe and sail to the other side of the lake. But how can I put this? These Great Lakes aren't moons. They are space stations. All right, that metaphor doesn't really work, but how about this? These lakes are freshwater seas, mini oceans. Seriously. And I've talked about them before in Season 1, Episode 6, Little House in the Backstory. Laura Ingalls Wilder's maternal grandfather was killed on Lake Michigan. All right, can you name all of the Great Lakes? There's... Wait, do I give you a second? Are you pausing me? No, I'm just going to do it. All right. There's Erie, Ontario... Michigan, Huron, and Superior. And I have been to all of these, except Lake Superior. Yeah, I've only been to the Upper Peninsula one time, and I've only crossed the Mackinac Bridge once. Well, I mean twice, because like once over it and then once back. But I have been to Mackinac Island twice. I was actually flown in an airplane, like a little mini airplane, onto the island when I was like nine. Uh, Anyhow, um, wait, have you heard about the Great Lakes controversy? Well, there's probably many, but this one says that Lake Michigan and Lake Huron should only be one lake. My correct opinion is that they are two separate lakes, and I have nothing to support this other than there are straits in between the two lakes, which just, it, it just makes them two separate lakes. Lakes. The Great Lakes contain 84% of North America's freshwater supply and 20% of the world's freshwater. But let's talk specifically about Lake Superior, also known as the big lake they call, wait for it, Gitchi or Kitchi Game. <laughs> According to various sources, the I at the end of Gami would be more like the I in it than a long E sound. I'm going to try to say it again. Gitchi or Kitchi Game. Of course, Gordon Lightfoot pronounced the name Gitchigumi, which is just also acceptable now. This Ojibwe word for superior means big as or great sea, big water. You get the idea. Superior is the largest of the Great Lakes, slightly smaller than the state of South Carolina. She Yes, lakes are also gendered female traditionally, but you do you. It's just so ginormous that you could fit all of the other Great Lakes, Michigan, Huron, Erie, and Ontario, 
inside of Superior. And I think you can fit Yuri in there like five times. She's pretty testy too. There are definitely calm days, but in the fall months, the gales start to pick up. And a gale is a very strong wind, causing major storms on the water. Superior is also brrr chilly. The average lake temperature hovers around 45 degrees in the hottest summer months. According to the Minnesota DNR website, quote, except for shallow bays and beaches, the water temperature in the lake seldom reaches 55 degrees Fahrenheit, even during the hottest summer weather. And those winter months? Don't go swimming. Survival in the lake without a life jacket is on average less than two hours. End quote. Anyhow, no thank you to any of this. Lake Superior is located north of the Upper Peninsula of Michigan and south of Canada. It touches Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. Something else I want you to know about Lake Superior? She has a Twitter page, and it's pretty freaking great. Now, let's talk about when this tragedy took place. For some reason, I often think about the sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald as happening a long, long time ago. And for some of y'all, 48 years is a long, long time ago. But when I used to think about the sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald, I would think of it happening in like the late 1800s or the early 1900s. I'm sorry if that's insulting to any of you. But somewhere around the sinking of the Titanic. I think this is because I wasn't alive yet. Not technically. My mother was six months pregnant with me. Therefore, I only ever read about the incident or sang a folk song that also just seemed old. And I deeply apologize if I'm offending any of you. I don't mean to. And trust me, I'm getting it handed back to me as my children will say, Well, Mom, you were born in the 1900s. But let's talk about culture and music around the time of the Edmund Fitzgerald's last voyage. The date was November 10th, 1975, and the number one song in the Billboard charts was Island Girl by Elton John. Do me a favor. Don't look up the song and listen to it. It's, I don't know, not one of Elton's greatest songs. I'd never even heard of it, but what's sort of funny was that my sister started singing it when I said, hey, Island Girl by Elton John was the number one song when the Edmund Fitzgerald sang, because she was very much alive then. Since that song did not help me with thinking about the times, let's try some other songs. The number one country song was, Are You Sure Hank Done It This Way by Waylon Jennings, and... The UK number one was a David Bowie song called Space Oddity, which I could actually see the crew listening to on board the Fitz, but yeah, no on the number one dance song, which was Love to Love You Baby by Donna Summer. Looking at the overall popular songs at the time, so songs that the crew probably listened to, One of These Nights by the Eagles, Cats in the Cradle by Harry Chapin, or First, Last, My Everything by Barry White. Hey, there could have definitely been some Barry White fans on board. The number one movie was a movie I had never heard of. Let's do it again. 
But let's just use the movie Jaws, since it was the blockbuster movie the previous summer, although sharks are not a thing in Lake Superior. Lake Superior will kill you a hundred other ways. Number one TV shows were All in the Family, Sanford and Son, Bob Newhart Show, Starsky and Hutch, and M.A.S.H. As for fashion in 1975, I'm going to let my mother explain this one. She wrote this in my baby book. Mother's dress style and length. Anything goes. Short, middle, long. Hairstyle. Natural look. She wrote this for both men and women. From bestofdate.com, quote, In fashion, the hippie look from the 1960s and early 1970s had disappeared. The disco look is beginning to take off. Women are wearing t-shirts, khaki pants, mood rings, kimonos, and flare jumpsuits. Meanwhile, men are wearing velvet sports coats. Let's bring that back. Slogan t-shirts, flannel. This sounds like today's, what, what people wear today. Oh, frilly shirts? No, I don't know about that one. Jeans and khaki chinos, end quote. I don't like the word chinos, and I don't know why. I have no reason. Anyhow, the President of the United States was Michigan's own Leslie King Lynch Jr., a.k.a. Gerald Ford. Well, he was at least president for one more year. But let's go back to November 9th, 1975. This date occurred 17,549-ish days ago. Approximately 585 months have passed. It was the 313th day of 1975 in week 45. The decade was the 70s. People who were born on November 9th, 1975 are now 48 years old and belong to the Generation X generation, the best generation. The Earth has experienced 195 seasons of weather since then. All of this paints a picture of what life was like in 1975. And in 1975, the Edmund Fitzgerald was in her prime, with so many potential years ahead of her. On November 9th, 1975, the Edmund Fitzgerald picked up a load of tassinite pellets. These pellets are brought to steel mills and melted down into steel. The intended route for the crew was to leave the town of Superior, Wisconsin, cross over Lake Superior, head southeast to the Sioux Locks, and then go south through Lake Huron to Detroit, Michigan, which was actually where the Fitz was heading. While they were fully loaded, they were not heading for Cleveland. And I guess when Gordon Lightfoot wrote the song, Cleveland just sounded better than Detroit. And don't you love the way he says Detroit? Detroit. And to be really specific, the ship was heading for Zug Island, which was in Detroit. Or Detroit. Or Detroit. The weather forecast seemed just fine, even pleasant. The National Weather Service had been tracking a storm out on the plains, but it was forecasted to stay south of Superior. However, it was clear by nightfall on November 9th that the forecast was incorrect. The storm wouldn't just hit Lake Superior, it would hit her hard. But the captain and crew didn't know this as they waited for the pellets to be loaded. The crew consisted of 29 souls the captain, the first, second, and third mates. Five engineers, three oilers, a cook, a wiper, two maintenance men, three watchmen, three deckhands, three wheelsmen, 
two porters, a cadet, and a steward. At 2.15 p.m., the ship pulled out of the port. As the Fitz steamed out onto Lake Superior, Janice Armagost was standing on the breakwater with her two children. She was hoping to catch a glimpse of her husband, Michael Armagost, third mate. Janice yelled to a deckhand standing near the bow, asking where her husband was. The deckhand responded, below deck. Janice was the last person to see anyone on the Edmund Fitzgerald alive. Now, there was another steamship leaving her port about the same time as the Fitz, called the Arthur M. Anderson, captained by Jesse Bernie Cooper. This ship was leaving Two Harbors, Minnesota, and headed for Gary, Indiana. In case you were wondering, Superior, Wisconsin and Two Harbors, Minnesota are about 42.6 miles apart. Two Harbors being northeast of Superior. And the Edmund Fitzgerald was leaving Superior, Wisconsin, and Arthur M. Anderson is leaving Two Harbors. So they're about 42.6 miles apart. Both of these cities are on the shores of Lake Superior. They're right on the coast. The plan for the Anderson was to ride along the same course as the Edmund Fitzgerald, but after passing through the Sioux Locks, the Anderson would then head west through the Mackinac Straits and out onto Lake Michigan, whereas the Fitz would continue down through Lake Huron to Zug Island. The Anderson departed just ahead of the Fitz on a parallel course. However, the faster Fitz passed the Anderson out on Lake Superior. The two ships maintained a distance of 10 to 15 miles from each other, about half an hour apart. Both captains knew the storm had turned worse than originally predicted. Both captains were pretty well seasoned and neither was afraid of the storm, but knew better than to not take it seriously. Do not turn your back on Lake Superior, friends. She's tricky. Gale warnings were issued around 7 p.m. on November 9th, but now... It was Monday, November 10th, 1975. The Anderson and the Fitz began communicating to each other about the storm. Both ships had the latest and greatest equipment of the time and were tied into the National Weather Service. Both McSorley and Cooper decided to alter their course and hug the Canadian shore, so they were going to go a bit more north to seek a sort of refuge from the incoming storm. Now, you'll have to get a map for this because I'm not sure I can really set the scene for you, but I'm going to try. Remember earlier, I had said that Lake Superior is partly in Canada and partly in the United States. Or maybe I didn't say that and I'm just saying it now. But I did say to the north is Canada and to the south is the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. In my correct opinion, it's important to discuss the Upper Peninsula and its shape at this point in the story. So, are you able to envision the shape of the Upper Peninsula? We all know that the LP, or Lower Peninsula, is shaped like the hand of God, or a mitten, or just your own hand. But what about the UP? Jessica Shepard from MLive wrote an article in 2017 titled, 25 Things People Think the UP is Shaped Like, and Some of These Answers Were So Fun. An anteater, a mermaid, a gazelle, a fox's head, 
the logo for the 2005 film Batman Begins. That one's weird. Okay. A scarf, a fatter sideways Italy, a leaping ram, the Greek god Mercury, porterhouse steak, driftwood. Some of the better descriptions are a deer, a sideways hand, and a rabbit. But let's go with sideways hand for this envisioning. This is my preferred method when I have to show something about the Upper Peninsula, which is rare. I don't really know that much about it because, like I said, I've only been there once, and it was at the very, very bottom of it. And I know I'm a typical troll. That's what the Youpers call those of us who live under the bridge, you know, down here in the LP, the Lower Peninsula. I like to say LP because it sounds gangster. Anyway, okay, so your left hand, got it? Palm up, tip it sideways so your fingers are pointing to the right. Your thumb is like the part of the UP that juts out into the water. Your thumb would be like a little peninsula all on its own with Cooper Harbor at the tippy top. As you travel along the outside of your palm to the right, you get to the edge of your pointer finger. Pretend this is Whitefish Point. Travel to the end of your middle finger, and this would be where the Sioux locks are located. But that space between the end of your pointer finger and the end of your middle finger? That's Whitefish Bay. Back to the Edmund Fitzgerald and the Arthur Anderson. Both captains, McSorley and Cooper, agreed to take the northerly course across Lake Superior, hoping to be protected by highlands on the Canadian shore. Later, the two ships would turn to the southeast to eventually try for Whitefish Point and then Whitefish Bay, where they would be sheltered. But as we know, the SS Edmund Fitzgerald did not make it. The weather was getting worse, way worse. Storm warnings were issued in the early morning of November 10th, upgraded from the gale warnings that had been issued on November 9th. The winds were gusting to 50 knots, 60 miles per hour, and waves were 12 to 16 feet high. Something else was also tricky. The sunlight was gone, blocked out by the storm. This caused Lake Superior's blue water to turn gray or green, which in turn blurred the division between water and sky. Still, both McSorley and Cooper were seasoned captains. They had both steamed through storms, kind of similar to this one. They also had the best radar systems on board. But then, Fitz's radar gave out. They were steaming blind. At 3.30 p.m. that afternoon of November 10th, Captain McSorley radioed Captain Cooper and said, Anderson, this is the Fitzgerald. I have a fence rail down, two vents lost or damaged, and a list. That means tilt. I'm checking down. Will you stay by me till I get to Whitefish? End quote. I looked up the term checking down, and OregonRowing.org tells us that Checking down hard means stopping immediately. So I take the term I'm checking down to mean I'm stopping the ship. Maybe not hard, but we are stopping her. This may have been done to allow the Anderson to close the distance for safety. Captain Cooper asked McSorley if he had his pumps going, and McSorley said yes, both of them. According to weather reports, it began to snow. Hard, that afternoon. And although the Anderson couldn't visibly see the fits... 
the Anderson's radar showed the ship 17 miles ahead. There were other ships out on Superior that afternoon. One of them was the Avafors, or Avafors, a westbound Swedish freighter whose pilot, not sure why he wasn't referred to as a captain, spoke to McSorley on a radio telephone conversation. The following was the radio transmission between the Avafors and the Mighty Fitz between 5.30 and 6 p.m. Avafors. Fitzgerald, this is the Avafors. I have the white fish light now, but still am receiving no beacon. Over. Fitzgerald, I'm very glad to hear it. Avafors, the wind is really howling down here. What are the conditions where you are? Fitzgerald, indiscernible shouts heard by the Avafors. Don't let nobody on deck. Avafors, what's that, Fitzgerald? Unclear. Over. Fitzgerald, I have a bad list, lost both radars, and am taking heavy seas over the deck. One of the worst seas I've ever been in. Avafors, if I'm correct, you have two radars? Fitzgerald, they're both gone. By 5.30 that evening, gusts had risen to 70 knots, 85 miles per hour, and waves were peaking at 25 feet. These waves crashed over the sides of the Fitz and destroyed the lifeboats of both the Anderson and the Fitz. At 7.10, the Anderson checked in with the Fitz. The pumps were going, doing their best to clear the water, flooding the deck and the hold. Captain McSorley told Captain Cooper, We're holding our own. Most people quote this as the last communication from the ship, but that wasn't exactly correct. What McSorley actually said was, We are holding our own, going along like an old shoe. A few minutes later, between 7.20 and 7.30 p.m., the Edmund Fitzgerald disappeared from the Anderson's radar. In an interview with Captain Jesse Cooper, conducted before his death in 1993, Cooper stated, quote, My gut feeling was I knew she was gone when I couldn't see her on the scope. End quote. But perhaps she just wasn't showing up on radar. Remember, the Fitz had been about 17 miles ahead of the Anderson just an hour before that. But when the Anderson finally arrived to Whitefish Point just before 8 p.m., the Edmund Fitzgerald was not there. Captain Cooper first contacted the United States Coast Guard in Sault Ste. Marie at 7.39 p.m., but because of wind damage to the Coast Guard's antennas, they lost communication. Finally, at 9.03 p.m., Cooper got through to the Coast Guard and reported the 16-foot boat, the Edmund Fitzgerald, missing. Crazy enough, the Coast Guard was like, Yo, uh, do you mind going back out to look for her? That was not a direct quote, but you should hear the shock in Jesse Cooper's voice. I actually did listen to the transmission, and I'll post the link to it in my sources on Buzzsprout. A distressed, extremely hesitant, and exhausted Jesse Cooper replies, quote, Oh God, I don't know. That sea out there is tremendously large. If you want me to, I can, but I'm not going to make any time. I'll be lucky to do two or three miles per hour going back out that way. Over. Later in the conversation, the Coast Guard states, It looks like, with the information we have, 
that it is fairly certain that the Fitzgerald went down. We're talking now a matter of life and death and looking for survivors that might be in life rafts or in the water. We can only ask the masters to do their best without hazarding their vessels. Captain Jesse Cooper stated, I'll turn around and give it a whirl. I'll try. The Arthur Anderson turned back into the storm to try to rescue any potential survivors. This was a night that haunted Jesse Cooper for the rest of his life. When the Anderson arrived to the last place of the Fitzgerald, Cooper stated that he saw a lot of debris, deck chairs, gas tanks, life preservers, canisters, but no bodies. The Coast Guard also sent a ship, the rescue vessel Woodrush, from Duluth, Minnesota. It would take 21 hours to arrive on the scene, and when it did, a life ring from the Fitzgerald popped up to the surface. Dude. Did you just get chills? Captain Jimmy Hobaugh from the Woodrush rescue vessel stated, quote, Of course we searched for the three full days, and it was rougher than you can imagine. No matter how I turned the ship, we were taking green water over the top. If there had been someone there, I'm positive that my crew was good enough that we would have got them. End quote. Later that month, the U.S. Navy and Coast Guard found the ship under 535 feet of water, northwest of Whitefish Point. The ship sank in Canadian waters about 17 miles northwest from the entrance to Whitefish Bay. In 1976, a Navy underwater recovery vehicle photographed the wreckage. The ship had broken into two pieces. But I want to say something else about the Arthur M. Anderson. These men were heroes. They decided to go back out into the storm to find any potential survivors. The Arthur M. Anderson is still in use today, and it is the most highly revered ship on the lakes. According to a comment I read, so I have absolutely no source for this, and I did Google it, but didn't really see anything right away. To this day, when the Anderson passes through the Sault Ste. Marie locks, the lockmaster and all ships in the area lower their flag in honor of the Anderson's heroic attempt to find the Fitzgerald. They might have split up, or they might have capsized. They may have broke deep and took water. This is the line Gordon Lightfoot wrote in 1976 because there was and is no definitive answer as to what happened. And in that one line, that one sentence, there are three theories? Stop. Hold up. Do you interchange the words theory and hypothesis around because it's been like a hundred years since you learned the difference? Well, I needed a refresher, so you're getting one too. I still recall that a hypothesis is an educated guess, but a theory has some data to back it up. So a theory is trying to explain something with evidence to support it. Therefore, there were three hypotheses in that one line. Did the fit split up? Did it capsize? Was there a hole in the hull in the bottom bringing in water? There are so many theories and hypotheses as to what happened, and I was getting lost in all of them. But just let's just talk about a few. The Shoals. Out on Lake Superior, there is an island called Caribou Island, 
and near to this island is a reef called the Six Fathom Shoal. Simply put, a shoal is a shallow area, and all mariners knew this area near Caribou Island and knew it was dangerous. Did the Fitz unknowingly rake a reef when the navigational system had failed? If this happened, then the ship really was screwed because they would have taken water at the bottom. But like, not a gash in the side like the Titanic, but the very bottom. The Shoal hypothesis turned into a theory because it was supported by a 1976 Canadian hydrographic survey, which disclosed that an unknown shoal ran a mile further east of Six Fathom Shoal. Officers on board the Arthur M. Anderson observed that Edmund Fitzgerald sailed through this exact area. In that interview with the Arthur Anderson captain, Jesse Cooper, I mentioned earlier, Cooper stated that Captain McSorley didn't let on that his ship and crew were in danger. McSorley stayed calm. Now, this is a quote from Captain Jesse Cooper. I think he knew he was in trouble, but he couldn't spread the word because it would panic the crew. End quote. When asked how McSorley knew he was in trouble, Cooper replied, and I envision this as just more of a clapback, what the hell would you think if you had a hole in your bottom and you were taking in more water than you could pump out? End quote. Also, I don't know that he said it like that. It's, it's just, uh, I'm probably making, taking that wrong. Anyway, so did the Fitz run over a reef? I don't know. But more on that a bit later. Here's our next hypothesis theory. Rogue wave. This one says that a rogue wave hit the boat. Well, actually, it's, of course, a little more complicated than that. There is something horrifying out on the open waters, and it's called Three Sisters. This is a group of waves, one-third larger than normal waves. From the book Lake Superior Shipwrecks, quote, The first wave introduces an abnormally large amount of water onto the deck. The water is unable to fully drain away before the second wave strikes, adding to the surplus. The third incoming wave again adds to the two accumulated backwashes, quickly overloading the deck with too much water. End quote. Three sisters were reported in the vicinity of Edmund Fitzgerald at the time she sank. Now, on the other boat, the one behind the Fitz, Captain Cooper stated that the Arthur M. Anderson was, quote, hit by two 30 to 35 foot seas about 6.30 p.m., one burying the aft cabins and damaging a lifeboat by pushing it right down into the saddle. I don't know what that means. The second wave of this size, perhaps 35 foot, came over the bridge deck. And, quote, Captain Cooper stated that these two waves possibly followed by a third, continued in the direction of the Edmund Fitzgerald and would have struck about the time she sank. So, if there were already problems going on with the Fitz, these waves would have compounded her problems. Also, isn't that interesting? Because I think a lot of people say that this is the real reason that this ship sank. Do you remember when the Edmund Fitzgerald was launched and she sent a rogue wave into a crowd of people and caused somebody's death? 
It's just interesting, right? No. Okay. Reading through all the different hypotheses was really maxing out my brain coverage for the fits. I mean, there are so many. Since McSorley had never called for help and the Fitzgerald's lifeboats were found badly damaged but still secured, the Coast Guard determined that the ship must have sunk abruptly. But let me sum up all of this into a giant mega quote. And I'm going to do something I don't normally do, except that I just did it. I'm going to read a comment made six years ago on a YouTube video from Excalibur69, who was apparently a family member of someone lost on the Edmund Fitzgerald. Now, the reason I don't include comments to articles, videos, etc. is because it is difficult to get a source from the comment. But this comment by Excalibur69, that name though, was so interesting and had so many people backing it up, I'm going to share it with you. Let me give you a little background, though. The comment is about a dive that Frederick Joseph Shannon took in 1994. I Google searched this man, and it turns out he passed away a year ago, on November 26, 2022. His obituary states, quote, In 1994, Fred's fascination with scuba diving and Great Lakes history compelled him to take on one of his greatest endeavors when he led an expedition to the Edmund Fitzgerald in Lake Superior. End quote. This man, Fred Shannon, was also a bit controversial and led to the law banning just arbitrary adventurers from exploring the Edmund Fitzgerald, but let's get to that comment. Quote, in 1994, many of the questions were answered by former police officer Frederick J. Shannon. He took an expedition down to the Fitz. It was the first American-manned submersible dive ever. He set records for the longest time spent at the wreck site. He mapped the entire wreck site using GPS technology. The bow section is in United States waters, while the inverted stern section is in Canadian waters. It was determined at that time the general alarm was triggered, therefore the crew knew they were going down. The Chadburn reads all stop and is tipped over on the floor of the pilot house. Shutting down propulsion is the first step in abandoning ship. One would not want to be hit by a rotating 19.5 foot wide propeller. Not that you would ever try to launch a heavy metal lifeboat in 30 foot waves anyway. Inflatable life rafts were useless as well with 100-mile-per-hour wind gusts, which leaves only one thing left. Life jackets. The port side pilot house door is open and locked in the open position, giving more evidence the crew tried to abandon the ship at some point. Evidence also proves the Fitzgerald broke apart on the surface, the stern section sinking first, coming to rest on the bottom, Inverted, that means upside down. There are two huge piles of tassinite pellets, which also is evidence that the Fitzgerald was not underway when she broke apart. If it was underway, nosedive theory, the tassinite would be spread out over a larger area, not in two huge mountains that are well documented. The Fitz did not hit a shoal. In fact, according to the Anderson's logbook, the Anderson was closer to the shoals than the Fitzgerald ever was. 
We know this because the only course we know the Fitz was actually on was that of 141 degrees. In other words, right where she needed to be to make it to Whitefish Bay. I'm continuing with this long comment. The Anderson's logbook places the Fitzgerald more than three miles off of Caribou Island, well away from the shoals. This is not conjecture, this is fact. Furthermore, the Fitzgerald did not have the ability to pump water from the cargo hold. When McSorley reported back to the Anderson that they had both of their pumps running, and yet were not making any headway on the starboard list, we are talking about ballast tank water, not water in the cargo hold. The Fitz's pumps could evacuate 7,000 to 7,500 gallons per minute through 16-inch pipes exiting out of the stern. Yet, the Fitz was not able to correct the list. He was pumping Lake Superior in through a stress fracture of the hull that spanned two ballast tanks, 7,500 gallons per minute, but not making any headway on the list is probably why McSorley replied, we're holding our own. In other words, not getting better on the list, but not getting any worse. Worst? No, worse. The rogue wave theory has some merit when placed in conjunction with the stress fracture. The fits having already been compromised with a stress fracture would have been riding low in the water with the two waves in close succession hitting it. This would have finished off the Fitzgerald. Fred found five lost crewmen after reviewing his high-definition underwater footage and still photos. Having lost a family member on the Fitzgerald, I am eternally grateful to you, Fred Shannon, for your hard work and determination in solving this case once and for all. The crew can finally rest in peace. I would also like to thank you for being the first person ever to recognize the Fitzgerald as a gravesite by placing the memorial plaque on the Fitzgerald in 1994. It means a lot to all of the surviving family members of the lost crew. That is the end of a long-ass comment. I'm not sure it was worth it, but when I wrote this, it seemed to be. But wait. What what was in that comment? Something about Fred Shannon finding five lost crewmen? In 1994, remember, this all happened in 1975. I mean, like, the wreck did. So let's talk about that. The Edmund Fitzgerald as a gravesite. And it is now recognized as such, with no further expeditions allowed. A gravesite? I'm about to go morbid on you here. That line in Gordon Lightfoot's song, Superior, they said, never gives up her dad. Is it true? Well, it depends. Jacob Harrison wrote an article for News Talk WBCK, which I'm guessing stands for Battle Creek Kalamazoo, about this very topic. In the article, Jacob, um, goes there. Jacob followed the research of truthorfiction.com, which took from many sources to figure out if, in fact, Lake Superior prevents dead bodies from floating. Quoting Jacob, It is true that the normal bacteria that causes dead bodies to decompose and form gases that result in bloating and floating 
is dormant in Lake Superior as the lake is somewhere between 32 and 55 degrees throughout the year. However, it isn't a be-all, end-all situation across the lake. End quote. Well, right. If someone drowns and is on the surface of the lake or in shallow waters or near the shore, things will happen differently. I wish you could see my face right now. Let's continue with Jacob's quote. While there have been roughly 350 shipwrecks and an estimated 10,000 lives lost to Lake Superior, there aren't 10,000 bodies, or nearly that many, preserved at its bottom, though even a rough estimation of how many could be down there isn't information available on the internet from what I can tell. End quote. Same, Jacob, same. I never could even get a rough estimate. Now, a lot of people talk about the SS Kamloops, which is a ship that sunk outside of Isle Royale in December. Actually, it disappeared on December 6th, 96 years ago today. As I'm writing this on December 6th, 2023, I love it when that kind of stuff happens. Anyhow, all aboard were lost on the Campos. Nope, I didn't say that right. On the Kamloops, that was the ship. But deep within the preserved body of the SS Kamloops is, well, a well-preserved body called Old Whitey. Because the body is encased in... Let's stop. No, do me a favor. Go to Caitlin Doty's. I think that's how we pronounce her name, YouTube channel, and watch her episode called The Lake That Never Gives Up Her Dead. I'm going to try to remember to link it for you in my show notes on Buzzsprout. Caitlin, in my correct opinion, is hilarious and does a great job of explaining what the heck happens to a body submerged in really cold water for a period of 96 years or less. However, I want to warn you, as much as I loved watching her episode, I don't think Caitlin is completely correct. I don't know that everybody is preserved. See, old Whitey was one of 13 crew members, so where is everybody else, right? No one was ever recovered from the Edmund Fitzgerald. There were no bodies floating at the surface. Nobody washed up on a shore. They all went down with the boat, and they went down quickly. Did they know they were going down and thinking of abandoning ship as Excalibur 69 commented? Or did it all happen so quickly they didn't know what hit them? Well, when Fred Shannon went down to the site in 1994, he discovered about five crew members. A quote from Excalibur 69. One of these bodies was a body found outside the Fitzgerald and he is still wearing his cork panel life vest, with the circa 1970s D-ring clearly visible in the photos and videos Fred provided me. End quote. Or comment. And even if this person is not telling the truth, the truth is that Fred Shannon absolutely did discover a crew member laying face down with some debris on top of him. Are all 29 crew members inside the body of the Fitz? I couldn't get a for sure answer yes or a for sure answer no, so I don't know. But let's just sum this up. 
with Lake Superior, it said, sometimes gives up her dead, depending on where they died. But that doesn't really flow great in a song. Anyhow, Fred Shannon's exploration of the Edmund Fitzgerald sparked a storm from most surviving family members. See, what's different than a lot of the shipwrecks of Lake Superior is that there are so many family members still alive that want to fiercely protect the gravesite of their loved ones. Side note, why not try to recover the bodies? Well, the Fitzgerald is very difficult to get to, and also, most sailors would have wanted to go down with the ship. They would choose the watery grave as opposed to one in the dirt. Also, as Caitlin Doty states in her YouTube video, as far as she could find out, it isn't illegal to dive to the ship because I think there's something going on with the Canadian government. They haven't made it illegal, although in the United States, it definitely is illegal. But if you do go near the Edmund Fitzgerald, you will incur an $800,000 fine if you do so without a permit. Oh, and before you decide to kayak out that way, first of all, don't. But second of all, there are supposedly alarm buoys like tripwire that will signal to the Coast Guard someone's out there nosing around. Why do we still remember the Edmund Fitzgerald with such a, what, morbid fondness? Curiosity sadness? Maybe it's because the Fitz was the largest ship to go down in Superior's waters. Maybe because the tragedy happened only 48 years ago with members of this generation very much still alive and remembering it. But it's probably, to be completely honest, because of Mr. Gordon Lightfoot. Lightfoot had been working on an Irish folk melody when he read about the Edmund Fitzgerald disaster two weeks after it happened in a Newsweek magazine. He began to write the lyrics. He also changed them over time to be more accurate, but he didn't change the official song. He would just change it during performances. Some parishioners objected to the Maritime Cathedral being called Musty. Lightfoot happily changed the lyric to a rustic old hall instead of a musty old hall. After the hatchways caving in hypothesis crumbled, Lightfoot changed the lyric at 7 p.m. A main hatchway caved in. He said, fellas, it's been good to know ya. Two. At 7 p.m. It grew dark. It was then. He said, fellas, it's been good to know ya. According to Lightfoot, that brought relief to the mother and daughter of crew members in charge of manning the hatches. But this song, let's be honest, it, it wouldn't stand a chance today. A folk song on the radio, and it's so long like this episode, right? I mean, same with American Pie by Don McLean. But both songs were released in the 70s, which was the absolute right timing, and they have been grandfathered in. Not all, but many grade school music teachers have used this song as part of their curriculum. My music teacher, Miss Young, was one of them. We absolutely had to learn every single line and perform the entire song in a concert, probably when I was in fifth grade, so like 1987. Think about that. 
it only would have been about 10 years since the tragedy had occurred. But I was so shocked when my kids' music teacher, Paul Dombrowski, was teaching this song to them in the 2010s. I began to wonder, is this part of Michigan's music curriculum? According to Paul Dombrowski, no, it's not. Paul wrote, quote, Third grade studied Michigan history, so I thought I'd try to put together a program about Michigan. I sold it to the kids by saying that people from other countries usually knew something about New York City, D.C., and L.A., but particularly nothing about Michigan. So I set about gathering songs that related to Michigan history. The wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald tied together a bit of Great Lakes geography, the shipping industry, and of course, the shipwreck. Kids love the song because it's very singable. It's a ballad. So there's the satisfaction of telling a long story. And it has its creepy elements. I actually think that most people who could today be classified as kids wouldn't know anything about the Edmund Fitzgerald. But there's a tiny subgroup that know it because a crazy music teacher made them learn the song. End quote. I love that. And I love that my kids know the story and the song. Reverend Bishop Richard Ingalls was the very first person to remember the men on board the Edmund Fitzgerald when he heard of the tragedy that night. He went to his church bell tower and rang the bell 29 times for each man on the Edmund Fitzgerald in tribute to them. Every year on the anniversary of the tragedy, according to two sources, that same bell recovered from the Edmund Fitzgerald rings 29 times, but this past year, it rang 30 times to recognize the death of Gordon Lightfoot. 29 men. Let me ever so briefly tell you about some of them. Third mate Michael Armagost of Iron River, Wisconsin. His widow Janice was the last person to see any of the crew alive as they pulled out of port. Janice says the families of the 29 men who went down with the Edmund Fitzgerald struggle with their loss. Quote, Nobody realizes that there are survivors. I mean, my kids' father is on that ship, and my husband's on that ship, she said. And people just think of it as a shipwreck that happened so long ago, and it's not. Oops. Totally guilty. John Soaring has written about his uncle, Oliver J. Buck Shampoo third assistant engineer. I was young at the time, and he would tell me stories about the sounds that the Fitzgerald would make, and I didn't know if he was just teasing me, but he would talk about the screeching. As a young kid, you thought he was just joking, but it makes sense now, said Soaring. Gordon McClellan was on the Edmund Fitzgerald for five years and worked as a wiper. He was short and stocky and always had a smile on his face. He also loved hot dogs. He had gone to school to become a pastry chef so he could make some desserts, too. Gordon's parents lived in Clearwater, Florida at the time of the wreck, and he was building his home in Presque Isle. So, he would travel back and forth, between traveling and the Fitzgerald. Ransom E. Cundy from Superior, Wisconsin. He was a watchman on board the Edmund Fitzgerald. 
according to a statement on the edmundfitzgerald.org. He joined the United States Marine Corps during World War II and fought in the Battle of Iwo Jima on February 19, 1945. He was one of the few fortunate to survive the historic invasion. He was well-liked by his relatives and friends on shore and also with his sailing community. He was known to like to tell jokes and pull pranks on his fellow crewmates. He could always be counted on if someone needed advice or a favor. He was a man with very strong beliefs. Joseph Mazes, special maintenance man, was a very kind man who loved to give his family gifts. He was very generous all of the time, even though he was only home two months out of the year. Joseph sailed on the Great Lakes for 30 years, and the season that the Edmund Fitzgerald sailed in 1975 was going to be his last. He looked forward to his retirement. One interesting thing that relatives remember is Joseph, known as Jugsy, always said he was afraid of Captain Ernest McSorley. McSorley would never pull out of a storm, and he always put the ship in conditions that no one would ever think of, were the words people remembered him saying. Joseph Mazes loved his job but took it very seriously, saving another crewman's life at one point. The crewman fell overboard, and Mazes actually grabbed him by the hair and pulled him back on board. Besides a headache, the crewman had been saved and was not injured. Eugene O'Brien Eugene sailed on the SS Edmund Fitzgerald more than once in his lifetime, and he sailed on the Fitzgerald during its last voyage as wheelsman. According to Eugene's son, John O'Brien, Eugene was probably in the pilot house when the ship sank. He had the 4 p.m. to 8 p.m. shift. Robert C. Rafferty, the cook. We don't know if his last words were, fellas, it's been good to know ya. But there is a fact his family shared on ssadmundfitzgerald.org. He was actually thinking of retiring after that last trip because he was in bad health and was always away from the family, which he regretted. He was actually not even supposed to be on the ship. He was filling in for Richard Bishop, who was home with a health problem, <laughs> so Robert took his place. I used to take my father to some of the ports on the Great Lakes. I have good memories of a loving and devoted father, said Pam Johnson. Pam Johnson was 23 and an expectant mother when she first learned that the Edmund Fitzgerald had sunk with her father on board. She thinks it is very important for people to learn about the disaster because she says that is an important part of our history. Does anyone know where the love of God goes when the waves turn the minutes to hours? And now to decades. And as the time passes, so do the people who live through this tragedy until it completely fades away. Unless, of course, we do pass at least the song onto other generations. My neighbor Fran has a little grandson. I think maybe he's five or six. And the grandson has a little sister who's maybe three or four. And they actually might be a little bit younger than that, but Fran shared the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald with her two young grandchildren. Sharing the song sparked a conversation and then a fascination with the ship especially with her grandson. His tell-me-more requests to his grandmother led to, of all things, 
him wanting to be the Edmund Fitzgerald for Halloween. His parents fully supported this and crafted a ship for him to wear. I actually love this, as not just Lake Superior lives on, but the memory and the legend of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Oh, and the little sister? She was the Arthur M. Anderson, and she knew she had to stay a few steps behind the mighty Fitz. You know, to stay historically accurate. I have sort of an uplifting story to share instead of an Oops, I'm Stupid Again segment. The story comes from the music teacher that made the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald part of his curriculum and making sure that the story continued for at least another generation. Paul Dombrowski, my kids' retired teacher, wrote me and shared, quote, A fourth grader told me, that her family had gone to the UP over the summer and took the Sulax boat tour. They must have upbound, and apparently the announcer made an overly dramatic announcement. Something like, ladies and gentlemen, you have now entered Lake Superior waters, or something like that, to which our little girl promptly threw up. Because Superior, they said, never gives up her dead. By the time fourth grade started, she was able to laugh about it. Thank you so much for listening today. My sources were many, but I want to thank Gary from the opening of this, or rather Gary's sister, who I'm not going to name to keep identities hush-hush, for sharing that story with me about the picture of the Edmund Fitzgerald that was overexposed, causing it to look like a ghost ship. Also, special thank you to my music teacher, wherever she is. Her name back then was Miss Kathy Young. And a ginormous thank you to our friend, Mr. D, Paul Dombrowski, for continuing education and a love for the Edmund Fitzgerald. My sources will be posted in my show notes on Buzzsprout. Thank you to my monthly contributors. I truly appreciate your support. And join me next week, where I will bring back a special guest and more from where they stood. <laughs> <laughs>